Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 5th of June already. We're halfway through the year. <laughs> and what I'm, is happening? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. I forgot to mention, um, we're in studio today uh, <laughs> with myself, Edwin. <laughs> um, I'm Will. And I'm Rob. Yeah, we've got three people. Woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, we're entering to June. The year is mm. whizzing past. Mm. Uh, what have you guys been up to with your with your first week of June? Oh, I've been just like working and living. Rob, what's up with you? I've mm. been I've been sleeping, <laughs> <laughs> catching up. I've been away the last few weeks. I was yes. um I was rather awfully on a plane during the election night, <laughs> so I was getting election results via messenger. Um, oh, cruel. And so it was, it was very cool. It was like little like breadcrumbs of information, uh-huh. and it was just like sitting there being like, "What's happening?" Mm. Um, and so then, since then, I've just sort of like ignored the news for the last few yeah. weeks, which has been bliss. But now I'm like, no, I actually need a like engage. Yeah, actually engage. engage. Oh. Yeah, little breadcrumbs leading you back to a dumpster fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anyone, wherever they were, whatever situation they were in, wasn't during the election. Actually, no, that's a lie. Some people were. Some people, Some people yeah. were. But the point oh, is, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, being fed breadcrumbs of information or watching just the onslaught on TV is yep. pretty intense for everyone. Anywho, exactly. is mm. there like, would you like to tell us a little bit about your trip? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds exciting. So yeah, I was doing some work on informal settlements, so like slums and favelas, and it was a big group of like 10 students but also 10 professionals and we're looking at sustainable development of slums. So we were doing a lot of like idea generation and now we've potentially got some funding to carry through with some of the ideas that we came up with and we're going to sort of test them, see how they go. But yeah, it's a really interesting issue because by 2050, one in three people across the world will live in slums. And so like the big part of what we thought about during the workshop was that like the future city is the informal city. Partly because, A, it's just like it's such a huge challenge. It's I think the stats are like you'd have to spend 0.5% of global GDP every year to formalise all housing, which is like obviously pretty much impossible. Mm. Um, but in some ways, actually, and actually what we realise is that the informal city is the ideal city. Like there's so many great things that come in terms of community and like recycling and like there's, there's a hi- issues in terms of sanitation and health, but there's also a lot of really great things as well so it's how do we kind of maintain that but also sort of slowly sort of work on health and sanitation issues so yeah interesting interesting challenges that does sound interesting and also what's interesting uh completely as a segue is us entering into radiothon period so Ah. We'll be playing some stuff throughout the show. Well, I mean, um, we're, we're talking about community resources. We are talking we about are. nice yeah. community nice is coming together. Connection. Yes, he's coming together, and, and this a big part of that is three CR Community Radio. <laughs> <laughs> and a big part of this is um, powering Radical Radio, which yep, is the theme exactly. for this year's Radiothon. Um, so, if you don't know, if you're just tuning in now, Radiothon is an annual uh, fundraiser that we do here at three CR because it, it takes money. 
uh, to be here in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, to be here as late not, as night as we are. Not for any of us. We work not for any free. Of us. Mm. We work for free, but uh, to for the electrical cords, the microphones, mm-hmm. the computers, the coffee, everything. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. requires money. And um, so we ask if you do enjoy these shows, if you do like supporting us, please feel free to donate to the station. Again, it doesn't go to us. Uh, we're volunteers. We're here because <laughs> we gave up our sweet time. <laughs> um, but it yeah. does go to keeping this wonderful uh, radio station yes. alive. Mm-hmm. Our target for this year, just to keep the lights on, is $250,000. That's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money when you consider all of these microphones, all of those many kilometres of Mm -hmm. cable Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. Um, You know that if you uh, call in during business hours, so that's from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, um, call us on 94198377. That's 94198377. It's the same one that you call in if you wanted to... Uh, keep up to date with other things to do with 3CR, um, pledge to make a donation and that'll, you know, you'll be powering Radical Radio, um, mm. you know. Mm. You Quite literally, you'll be powering the shows you enjoy. And mm-hmm. there are other ways you can also donate if our phone doesn't work for you. You can SMS us on 0488-809-855. That was 0488-809-855. Or you can send us a check in the mail to PO Box 1277 Collingwood, Victoria, 3066. Mm. You can also, of course, always come into our lovely station mm-hmm. and see where your money is going. Uh, the volunteers here are happy to show you mm. <laughs> exactly what we're funding here. Yes. Um, anywho, but that kind of jumping to the show, should we do a bit of a rundown for today? Yes. Okay. So um, already in the other room, we have uh, Violet from Extinction Rebellion coming in to give us a bit of a wrap on the news with Extinction Rebellion. Um, mm-hmm. We did report uh, a little bit, the, the voice of the people, a vox pop, mm. from the uh, the snap action that happened a little while ago. And so we're going to ask what's coming next, uh, what what to look out for in environmental news and that sort of thing. Um, so that's what we're starting off the show with. And then... 7.30, we've got the National Union of Students. Mm-hmm. Again, they're going to kind of be giving us their wrap-up over past election mm-hmm. and kind of where they're going from here, what's coming up. So, yep, that will be a lot of fun. Uh, then we're going to kind of have a uh, segment and a bit of discussion, just more about Radiothon and a mm. few community mm. events going on. And then we've got uh, your interview, Will. Yeah, that's right. At 8 um, o'clock. At 8 o'clock, we're going to be speaking to Dennis from the Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners Corporation. Uh, so, folks, if you are up to date with this sort of thing, you may have heard that on Gunditch Mara Country, the Budgebim um, Ancient Fish Traps are up for World Heritage um, Recognition. We're going to be talking about the significance of that. Mm. Um, why do these ancient fish traps need recognition from an organisation that's only been around since World War II? Um, <laughs> but no, it actually does matter, though, yeah, because it'll have definitely. implications for funding and things like that. And so that's why we're going to have Dennis Rose um, call in. Um, and then we're finishing the show. With Pete Rogers from Macquarie University, and he's going to be talking about uh, growing surveillance. So a little bit of a, mm. I was saying to Will, a little bit of a throwback to our past totalitarianism special from last yes. year. Yes, which but, you can still um, listen back to if you, you go to 3cr.org.au and then you click through to specials. Yeah, definitely. Go check that out if you have some time. Um, but obviously stick around for this show because he's going to be quite quite fascinating to listen to. Anywho, um, we're going to get straight into alternative news quickly and then we'll be up with our first interview. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Boom, nitty-gritty. Ooh-wee, 
So we're into alternative news as part of the segment where we bring you media from a different angle, shall we, we say? We try to, we try and, to. And uh, Rob's going to take it away today. Yeah, great. Um, just a quick trigger warning on the first story regarding suicide and self-harm. So a story on Manus Island. So for the Manus Island refugee camp, there's been a dramatic rise in self-harm and suicide attempts following the result of the Australian federal election. And so as a result, the local health system on the island has just simply not been able to cope with everything that's been happening and the increase with 31 reported suicide attempts since the election. So it's and it's and it's growing every day. Um, and as a result, numerous de- detainees aren't eating due to depression um, with the election result. And the uh, Manus detainee, Iranian born uh, journalist, Baruz Bachani, has been stating he's never seen anything like this before. And so the most recent development out of this is that uh, the parliamentary police unit has been deployed at the centre, and these are members who have in the past been accused of various human rights abuses, including um, murder and just very uh, just like horrible things, basically. And so the Manus Provincial Commander, David Yapu, the reason that they've brought the, the, um, the police unit in is he's saying that... Um, once the refugees, quote, see a policeman wearing a uniform at the camp, things will then go back to normal. So it's a pretty kind of awful development that's starting to happen over there. Um, and just as a reminder, uh, if you're in Australia, the crisis support line for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Um, another interesting story, not necessarily what we want to hear, but interesting is to do with gender equality. There was a recent index that just came out. Did any of you hear about this? Mm-hmm. So it's dubbed the SDG Gender Index, and it's found that not a single country will achieve gender equality by 2030, even our friends in Scandinavia. Um, and the index gave each country a score out of 100, 100 meaning equality has been achieved, and so the average score across the world was 657 so there's a long way to go. Um, and there's been a bit of discussion that as well as gender equality not actually being achieved yet, um, we're actually possibly starting to see a reversal as well. So, f- like, for example, in the US with the abortion law rollbacks. Um, further, this is something else finding quite interesting, is that there's been recent shifts in the UN agenda in regard to abortion rights because um, there's been extreme rights that parties that have been coming in and actually influencing the discussion a lot more. So in particular, there's this anti-abortion lobbying group called the Center for Family, Center for Family and Human Rights, or CFAM, and they've become increasingly powerful in leveraging the Trump administration to shift the debate um, regarding the UN's um, work on women's rights. And so as a result, we actually might see a shift in the language within the UN about um, language regarding women's rights, which will start to then influence laws internationally. So there's kind of a bit of a ripple effect starting to happen. So, I mean, obviously there's there's a huge way to go, but it's hopefully it's not going to get worse because there's a few signs that perhaps it might. So something to sort of think about and, you know, see if we can do something about that. Um, third story, which is kind of a interesting story of something I think that's, this is sort of my area, which is about, like, housing and um, urbanism. So there was an article yesterday that came out, and it's been reported a little bit over the last few years, about a trial about addressing homelessness in Helsinki. Um, and it was about re- um, homeless reduction through housing provision. And so Finland is the only country in the EU where homelessness rates are falling, and it's because they've changed their policy where they have a housing-first policy, which means um, basically 
so the, the previous model, so this was launched in 2008, and as a result, it's led to a 35% reduction in homelessness. So it's been really effective, and I'll explain how it's kind of worked. Um, so they found that the original system just wasn't functioning effectively, and so they needed radical change, even though the model isn't actually that radical. Um, the, the previous model was like a staircase model, so you move through various stages of temporary accommodation until your life was on track. And once you could prove you're making efforts and engaging in treatment services, then you were for want of a better word, rewarded, which I think is a horrible word to say, with stable accommodation. Um, but now the new model just makes housing unconditional from the start. Um, and so it, it kind of has the stability straight from the start, and they see housing as a human right. And so as a result, the model has been super successful um, by having that stability. Um, it's enabling residents to engage in services and all these various other factors um, contributing to homelessness and now reduced much more effectively. So it's kind of, by giving people that peace of mind of a stable place, now it's actually been a really effective policy and people can kind of, uh, yeah, access all the services that they need to. And I've read that not only is it not conditional on accessing services, but it also is tied in with funding for services. Well, like there's 30 additional staff on yeah, yeah. Like Helsinki it, or something. It's like been that. a really well-funded program. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like some people would say, like, what's the cost? And like the stats are like, well, it costs 250 million euros, which also isn't that significant, really. Mm. Um, however, there's been like savings elsewhere because the policy's been so effective. So um, they be- save more than 10,000 euro per 15,000 euros 15, per yeah. person. Yeah. Um, due in, to reduce claims. Wow. And things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's been balancing out, which has been great. Um, and it sort of shows, like, it, the data is indicating it's an effective and humane long-term solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the question is, like, why does this work so well specifically in Helsinki? And it's kind of because um, the Helsinki Council owns 70% of the land within the city limits, so obviously a very different situation to what we have here. Mm. Um but yeah, it's all contrasts so strongly to the housing situation in Victoria. I was just reading some articles and how, you know, the state governments just announced they're only going to build 1,000 public housing units um, in comparison to the 102,000 that we actually need. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's apples and oranges in terms of housing policy. But I mean, it's great to see that there are some great things happening across the world, but it'd be great to see them a bit more closer to home. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for that. that we're going to be back in just a minute um, with our first interview. Great. The 3CR Radiothon is here. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019. June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. I think we should get this invention, which sucks up all of the rubbish in the world and puts it in an intergalactic dimension. 2040 is the latest film by award-winning director Damon Camot and shows us a possible future we could have if we take on board all the best practice options available now to change our planet. 
join the Out of the Blue team for a special fundraising screening of 2040 on Thursday, 20 June at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. To book tickets, Google 2040 Out of the Blue Radiothon Movie Fundraiser or find the event on our Facebook page on facebook.com slash outoftheblue. Come along to Cinema Nova with the Out of the Blue team for a drink, a fantastic documentary and help raise funds for Radiothon 2019. Thursday, 20 June, 8 p.m. at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. Please note, saving the world is not guaranteed, but having a great night is. Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope. The time is 7.16 and you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Time for our first interview of the day. Uh, we're speaking to Violet, who is a member of the Melbourne faction of Extinction Rebellion Movement. Um, you've been on the show before. Welcome back. Yes, thank you for having Thanks me back, for coming Will. In. I love 3CR and I love 3CR listeners. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the um, reason why we have you in here today is just to give us a bit of a wrap on um, Extinction Rebellion news and on environmental news in general. Um, first of all, um, how was the, the snap action uh, a little while ago? Oh, it was so beautiful. Yeah. It was so fantastic. We had about 2,000 people there, even though it was raining all morning, mm-hmm. so we weren't sure, and, and still a bunch of people turned up, and mm-hmm. we had that beautiful die-in, and we had that beautiful whale, and yeah. yeah, it was just really fun, and and then congregated in the park afterwards, and swapped notes, and yeah, it was really great. Nice. And yeah. that, that was um, in, in conjunction, or just uh, just before... The Fridays for Climate, the school student strike as well? That's right, yeah, Yeah, school student strikes, Fridays for Climate, and so they're every Friday, amazing Mm -hmm. kids there, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's pretty, that's quite inspiring, isn't it? Mm -hmm. All these kids coming out, doing such great work. But yeah, um, so since then, um, Extinction Rebellion in Melbourne isn't resting, there's still stuff to do. Yeah. Um, So for for folks at home who may not have heard about Extinction Rebellion, that's maybe a sign that Extinction Rebellion hasn't done its job, because that's part of, it's message spreading, Mm. Um, and so if, if people don't know what it is, mm-hmm. um, can, can you give us an idea? Um, so Extinction Rebellion is a global movement to um, get people to act on the climate emergency that we are in, mm. and it does that through nonviolent direct action, which is basically the same model that um, the civil rights movement used, suffragettes movements used, um, the union rights movement used. works just like a strike. You disrupt the system until um, you're heard, pretty much. Yeah. Mm. Famously, mm. Extinction Rebellion in the UK took over the city centre, or took over mm. a certain yeah. set of important infrastructure. Five, five, five locations, and they've done yep. that twice. Mm. And um, since then, UK has actually declared a climate emergency, yep. Yep. and the government did acknowledge Extinction Rebellion and the youth yep. as um, as key um, movers mm. to make that happen. Yep. And I always say, like, I feel like I'm playing hopscotch when I say this, but England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales <laughs> have all declared a climate emergency. Yep. So that's really great. And also the mm. ACT declared a climate emergency. Yeah, that was um, pretty exciting. Yeah, and quite yep. a few councils around Australia as well, so mm. um, it's important to acknowledge this isn't a radical yeah. movement, this is like vital and necessary yeah. for what's mm. happening. And Extinction Rebellion has a sort of, I don't know if the right word to use is a checklist, but sort of a, a, a list of a procedure of how, how you kind of hope for things to go. It's not just declaring a climate emergency, there's mm. a step after. Yep, so there's three demands, mm-hmm. um, and they're all really important. Um, it's based off basically the history of, of movements and, and um, the best outcome, which mm. is, first one, tell the truth. Obviously, everyone needs to know exactly what's going on um, to be able to 
act in appropriate response. Uh, the second is zero emissions by 2025, and that doesn't mean like at 2025 we turn everything off. We need to start acting now to mm. be able to move ourselves and, and make that happen by 2025. Um, and there's a lot of science why that date. But um, and then the third demand is a democracy fit for purpose, and that's because in the past when we've declared an emergency and had to make this rapid change, there tends to be a bit of repression. Um, and so what we need is a citizens' assembly or, or basically the voice of the people to be a part of that change and that movement so that we don't have that repression happen. So it's really important that third demand comes in as well. Mm. Now, on the on the subject of uh, truth-telling, mm. um, there's not... Like, I mean, there is coverage of um, the, the Adani Mine Project um, mm-hmm. and uh, people do talk about it in the media, but not necessarily with the same sort of level of urgency that's, that is required, mm-hmm. it seems, by, mm-hmm. by what the impact of that mine could be. Um, what, what are the things that we should, be, we should be thinking about when it comes to the Adani Mine? Um, well, there's a, a beautiful community of birds there that are vitally at exti- um, ex- mm. risk of going extinct there. And, and But basically, I mean, the movement needs to go beyond just fighting the Adani mine and the coal situation in Australia. The, the fight really is on all fronts, and, mm. and I'd really love to open that up um, even further than just fighting the coal industry and, and um, move to, to a whole global emergency, really, and that includes so many different facets like our agriculture industry and, and um, fashion industry and, and just general like um, idea of needing continual growth in, in um, business and that sort of stuff as well. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I mean, fighting and, and getting Adani stopped in, in Australia is key to that process, but there is so much more to the emergency situation. Yeah, so mm. when it comes to in Australia, um, whilst we put pressure on the government to declare an emergency in, yeah. in the climate, what are our, um, our priorities in terms of um, projects or things that are happening in Australia that we should be sort of worried about? Um, I, I think... Rather than focusing on what we should be worried about, I I really would like to more look at what we can do um, to... to, Effect, effect change and really that is um, like I said going back to um, that mass civil disobedience and really coming together and, and Extinction Rebellion have a culture of doing that in a really fun way in a really inclusive way mm. we have really great things like um, the die-ins that happen we've got the Darabin die-ins they meet re- weekly and, and, and construct you know theatrical Can you give people an idea of what a die-in, a die-in is, is if they've not been? Uh, yeah it's basically so we like um, we f- go to a, a a group event. It's kind of like those dance-off things that used to happen where people just rush into a space and do a dance. But instead we just like lie on the floor and sometimes there's a choir running, sometimes somebody reads out a poem, sometimes it's absolute silence. Um, but it's basically to represent um, the the deaths and the, that are going to happen and that are already happening around the world with the, the climate crisis that's going on. Um, so it, it is, it's sort of a, a very serious topic. Obviously, there are, are people already dying, and, and, but we need to um, you know, find creative ways to represent that to people so they don't run away from it, and, and, um, and that's one of the ways that we do it. Mm. And that's the importance of these, these events being enjoyable as yeah, well, that people yeah. feel like they can engage, but also that they have some sort of agency rather than just 
just going into doom and gloom. Yeah, um, that's yeah. right. It's really important to have hope, and there is hope. You know, it's. Um, I think a lot of the science that's coming out right now is is really scary, and and I would recommend that we get a, you guys, everyone gets along to an intro talk just to really understand what's going on. This one this weekend at Kathleen Slime Library at ten thirty in the morning, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and um, basic. But but the point is that that is one path. And, and that's the path that we are on at the moment. But, you know, if we change what we're doing, that, that shifts that path. And that's where the hope lies, that we can come together. And, and we've seen that camaraderie in Australia before. When the Queensland floods happened, the whole communities came together to fix it. And, and you know, in wartime, we had massive change. And in two months, our whole economy shifted to be able to support the war. And, and this, at the end of the day, is going to be much more catastrophic and devastating than any war we've ever seen. And so, you know, we, once we recognize that, we can come together and fix it. And I really do have hope that we can. Mm. Now, you mentioned the intro talks. When you Mm. say intro talk, that's an intro to the climate science for people who aren't really engaged. Is that right? That's right. So basically, it's um, a talk that covers the first, the science, and then the philosophy behind Extinction Rebellion. So we cover um, why we do what we do and um, and how we're going to go about doing it, which includes a... Um, uh, you know, a week-long strike action in October. And I was just wondering, for people who can't obviously go to the, the die-ins or the snap actions rallies, I know people are working, people are doing mm-hmm. these things. Uh, civil disobedience, how can they kind of take that in their own individual capacity? Do you have a training something or something like that? We do. We construct, uh, have an NVDA training, Nonviolent Direct Action Training, which generally mm-hmm. does run for a whole day and it runs on the weekends. Um, and uh, and that basically let, it, it informs people on how to um, how to construct affinity groups, what we call, which is like basically your team, your little family that can go, you know, go and do stuff together. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's the base, the best way to to get involved in that that sort of action. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, just to confer- it, it's stressing violent action. Uh, some of the movements you suggested in the past, non-violent like the suffrage. Action. Sorry, non-violent. <laughs> 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 that's what the point is. Yep. So non-violent action. Um, some of the groups, like the suffragettes, for example, I know they they did include violence in their mm. sort of thing. How do you kind of say that we're different? You know, we're advocating for this civil disobedience. How do you? And we're still going to achieve change, I suppose. How do we justify yeah. it? Well, how do, how do you make it? Um, how do you know it's going to work, I suppose? Because well, some of these vi- movements have got violent Yeah, past. yeah, they have, absolutely. But I think, you know, we can see that it's already working. A year ago, the climate emergency was not on anybody's lips. And now, thanks to Extinction Rebellion and the, and the youth climate action, um, it is. And it's being recognized all around the world. And that's only in 12 months. So, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't follow anybody who said, let's have a violent movement. Mm. <laughs> no, and, I, and I think many people wouldn't. Um, so uh, that's why it's got to be nonviolent. And I think that we have that global consciousness now not to need to rely on that. We have an understanding that we can, you know, if we just disrupt peacefully, then that is enough. And, and um, we can see that's already happening. Yeah. So can you remind us of the details? of that um, intro session that's happening on the weekend. Which day, Saturday or Sunday? It's on Sunday. It's mm-hmm. at Kathleen Syme Library at 10.30 is the intro talk. And that's the 9th, I believe. Yeah, that's the 9th. 
Um, uh, yep, that yep. sounds right. Yep, yep, that's right. Um, and so Kathleen Slime Library, that's the one that's in Carlton. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Melbourne Uni. Okay, cool. And then afterwards, we actually have a planning meeting as well. So you can get involved with with working through what we're actually going to be doing between here and spring in that big week of action. Mm. So, yeah. Otherwise, you can find um, Extinction Rebellion's Australian faction at ozrebellion.earth. So that's A U S rebellion.earth. There's mm-hmm. no .com or anything. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's mm-hmm. it. That's um, it. Yeah, we've been speaking to Violet, who is a member of the Extinction Rebellion movement. Violet, thank you so much for coming uh, in. Thanks, Will. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you, everyone, who's listening. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Hmm. I think we should get this invention, which sucks up all of the rubbish in the world and puts it in an intergalactic dimension... 2040 is the latest film by award-winning director Damon Camot and shows us a possible future we could have if we take on board all the best practice options available now to change our planet. Join the Out of the Blue team for a special fundraising screening of 2040 on Thursday 20 June at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. To book tickets, Google 2040 Out of the Blue Radiothon Movie Fundraiser or find the event on our Facebook page on facebook.com slash outoftheblue. Come along to Cinema Nova with the Out of the Blue team for a drink, a fantastic documentary and help raise funds for Radiothon 2019. Thursday 20 June, 8 p.m. at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. Please note, saving the world is not guaranteed. But having a great night is... Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Hello gardeners, Pam Vardy here. Get ready to turn on and tune in to the Gardening Show's annual Radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 23rd of June from 7.30 to 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show growing. Listen in on Sunday the 23rd of June and call 94198377 for great deals on seeds, new organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions and new green-focused book titles. Or make a tax-deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio. Join us at the station after the show from 10 to 12pm to pick up your prizes, have a cuppa and say hello. Dig deep for the 2019 3CR Gardening Radiothon, 7.30 till 10am on Sunday the 23rd of June. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 
QR code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. CR has a new program, Think Again, with Jennifer and Jacques from Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for another take on things that matter. Starting 10am, Friday, 7 June. See you, See you then. And you're listening to 3CR. The time is currently 7.32. And we're now going to be talking to the National President of the uh, National Student Union. So I'm just going to put her on. This is uh, Desiree. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Um, So we just wanted to kind of follow up. I know we were talking uh, to your organisation prior to the election. I kind of wanted to follow up uh, past the election. Uh, How how are you guys going as an organisation? Yeah, well, um, I guess... Uh, I think the election results for a lot of um, organizations who are just non-for-profits and lobbying and, you know, that kind of space, we're all um, reconsidering our plans mm-hmm. uh, after the election. I think it was a bit of a shock um, to see the Morrison government re-elected. But, uh, you know, it means that we have to keep fighting um, for some of the changes that we want to see. Absolutely. And, of course, you were um, promoting... Uh, climate emergency and kind of student action. Um, what are the kind of the big areas that you're advocating for, especially in light of uh, the Scott Morrison election? Yeah, well, we had um, a few key areas that we were focusing on. Um, a few of the, uh, I guess, highlights um, were on uh, having like a national task force on sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing stuff around the climate um, and also making sure that you know education funding. You know, we wanted to roll back the cuts, and I guess the focus now is on um, making sure that there aren't further cuts mm-hmm. or fighting back when, if, if there are further cuts introduced. Um, I guess the big focus also for the entire movement has kind of been uh, talk about the Green New Deal, oh, okay. uh, kind of post-election. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's a really interesting way that we can get involved and get the education sector behind a Green New Deal, because obviously when you're talking about a just transition, um, so obviously the Green New Deal is about sorry a just transition for people working in kind of uh, industries that will phase out like coal and you know getting the new jobs in renewables and and making sure that we're doing like action on climate. Um, so yeah, making sure that reskilling and education is a big part of that conversation is really important for us. Absolutely, and I suppose that would be benefiting students by providing kind of a holistic reform to the workforce they're going to go into and kind of the society they're going to go into. Is the focus on primarily, I suppose, students, or is it the primary uh, focus more so on the re-education of the whole population? Um, I think there's a bit of both. <laughs> We're still trying to work it out. We have our big education conference coming up um, in less than a month or uh, so we'll be having conversations with student activists across the country about that. 
um, soon. Oh, wonderful. And can we just get the kind of the dates and details for that annual conference? We'll be ma- making sure for anyone who misses it right now to put it up on our website. But could we just get a, get those? Yeah. So education conference. It's one of uh, it's basically our annual um, skill sharing conference. So students, student representatives, student activists, they're invited to um, come together, learn from each other, and learn from um, people within the movement um, who are doing some good work. Uh, so that's from the 1st to the 4th of July at the University of Technology, Sydney. Wonderful. And what sort of um, themes will be kind of covered up there? What sort of projects? Yeah, so obviously we've talked a bit about um, the Green New Deal and the future for kind of environmental activism. Um, and we've also, I guess, been just the focus will be on how, how do we effectively um, combat some of the the issues that might come up in the next three years, mm. seeing as we um, have the Morrison government who has kind of shown that they're willing or not willing to do anything mm. really tangible for students. And I, def- I, I guess that's also uh, an additional question is um, obviously a lot of people are like, oh, why should I join in a union? What does a union do for me? What does the National Union of Students do for students on campus? Yeah, well, I guess student unions across across the board on campus, they provide services and they also are your voice mm. um, in terms of, like, talking to university management and on a broader level, the National Union of Students can lobby the government, lobby um, trust ventures and uh, opposition um, and also make sure that our issues are being heard um, on a range of other kinds of, uh, like, in a range of other bodies um, where they just want a student voice just to make sure that we're there at all. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, the cuts that could be potentially, you know, education kind of spending that the Liberals have promoted. Um, what are kind of the big threats that we've got to be aware of right now? Yeah. Well, so in the past two years, they've uh, frozen $2.2 million in um, funding and they've also lowered the HECS repayment threshold and created a loan limit for HECS. Um, those are all things that have already gone through, but obviously back in 2014, 2015, um, the Liberal government did try to put through deregulation of university fees, which would mean that students would have to pay $100,000 for their degrees. <gasps> Basically, you know, the eventual Americanization of oh, our university wow. model. Um, I, it I don't know if it's going to be so blatant this time around, yeah. but um, there are definitely definitely the cuts that we've seen up to this point have kind of um, been in service of moving towards that American model where it's the market, you know. Um, We're customers. Yeah, yeah, basically students are customers, which really sucks. Yeah, definitely. What do you what do you think that does to the whole? I, I mean, you've kind of touched on it, but the institution of education in Australia, just that kind of that shift in from student to customer? Yeah, well, we've already seen the effects of it in terms of, like, a staff level. We know that university staff have, basically, they're in really insecure work, um, and that's kind of the model that universities are going off. And for students themselves, it means that, um, you know, we don't come to university and see it as a learning community. It's seen as a transactional um, kind of relationship and rather than universities being seen as public institutions for knowledge production and, um, you know, students coming to the table to to contribute to that. We're just 
you know, kind of seen as uh, consumers. Mm. And I think that's from both sides. Students start to see, start to um, think about uni in that way as well. That's a, that's a really interesting point you touch on. What, what is the um, damaging effects of a student seeing themselves as a customer and seeing their education as, you know, one step to a job, basically, rather than one step mm. to further knowledge? Or I, I, I don't know, what's, what's the danger there? Yeah, well, I, I mean, in a lot of cases we see that um, students, I think it's really interesting, I sit in meetings sometimes um, with university management who ask, like, why why are students so disengaged with uni life, you know, compared to, like, back in my day, back in the 70s, back in the time for education? Mm-hmm. Um, why, why are they engaging less in, like, uni life? Why do they feel less connected to their peers? It's because of all the reality of uni life now, where um, obviously seen as consumers, so treated as such. But by the same vein, uni life is harder for students, and um, that's just you know with the uh, working while studying and student income support and the cost of living and all of that changing as well. Um, and then eventually thinking about your debt in the future. Mm-hmm. So all of that kind of contributes. Yeah, I know the debt weighs heavily on my conscience mm. <laughs> um, going into education, and it's a big, it's a big fear. I think um, just the uncertainty of education and where it's going. Um, I guess uh, you've mentioned touching on the new Green Deal. I was just going to ask a quick question: Is the National Union of Students currently participating in uh, the strikes for Friday action, or is there some movement around that? Yeah, we've so with the initial big strike, I think mm-hmm. we'll be, we've, we've helped out with the school strike um, in the past, and we'll definitely be talking to them more into the future. Mm. Um, I think with the strikes for Fridays, uh, we haven't really talked to the school strikers yet um, in terms of how they want us to get involved, but definitely building up to the big strike in September. Yeah. Um, we're really keen to be on board, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we'll have to make sure. So just getting the um, details again, it's the 1st to the 4th of July for kind of the education conference. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, that'll be really interesting to cover, I'm sure. Um, we'll have to check in with you after that. Yeah, awesome. All right. Have a lovely morning. Thanks for being on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me. And the time is currently uh, 7.41. We're going to be back. We're just going to have a quick song. This is I'll Fly Away. By, um, from the movie Oh Brother We're Out There which is one of my mm. favourite movies <laughs> <laughs> I get to choose the music <laughs> when I You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're coming up to 7.45 this morning. Um, right now we're going to be listening to Jacinta Kulmatri, who is an Adyamantina and Ngarindjeri person working and studying archaeology in Adelaide on Corner Land. Here she speaks on the ways in which Indigenous knowledge systems hold truth ignored by colonial institutions, and this was hosted by TEDx. Let's listen in. Prior to 1836, Ghana people, the Aboriginal and continuing owners of the land that we meet on today use their sacred sites, ceremonial grounds and cemeteries for their purpose. When the concept of Adelaide came into being, many of these places were destroyed, along with many of the people. 
It is important that I acknowledge that we are on Ghana land because I'm going to tell you some stories from my people, the Adyamatna people. Adyamatna Yatta, or Adyamatna land, lies six hours north of here, in what is commonly known as the Flinders Ranges. Just last year, archaeological evidence showed that we had been here for over 45,000 years. The first story I'm going to tell you about is the Yamuti. But in order for me to tell you about this story, I need you to close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine that you're a child, no older than five. It's night time. It's getting darker. You're with your cousins outside playing. Your aunties and your nanas are talking. But then one of your aunties says, all right, you kids, you need to come sit down because that yamati is going to come get you. And all of your cousins get scared. But you're a bit confused because you've never heard of the yamati before. And so you go to your auntie and you say, Auntie, what's the yamati? And she looks at you and she says, The yamati is a big, scary monster. He's bigger than you, and he's even bigger than me. So if you see that Yamati, you need to quickly run because he steals kids. The best place for you to go is to quickly run and climb up a tree because the thing about the Yamati is that he can't look up. He can only look down or side to side. He'll be able to smell you, but he just won't be able to see you. So you stay in that tree until one of us comes and gets you. You can open your eyes. The story about the Yamati came up last year when I was started doing, looking at research into rock art studies in South Australia as a postgraduate archaeology student. I was looking at one study and it had two anthropologists during the 1960s looking at extinct animals. They were interested in whether megafauna had coexisted with Aboriginal people. In particular, they were interested in one animal known as the Diprotodon. This animal was a large wombat-like creature that became extinct around 47,000 years ago. They found a footprint which they believed was the footprint of a diprotodon. And they did this by looking at the skeleton of one footprint and matching it with the image of the diprotodon's footprint. And because of this, they came to the conclusion and the idea became more interesting that Aboriginal people and megafauna had coexisted. The thing that I found most interesting about this story was that Aboriginal people were barely included. The only way that we were included was as informants. Back around that time, Aboriginal people were mostly used as 
people who they get information from and then go and tell the world about who these strange people were. They never really took in any information. This didn't surprise me because at the time, Aboriginal people weren't even included in the national count of people. You see, prior to the 1967 referendum to change the constitution, Aboriginal people were specifically left out. And this was because of two reasons. The first reason was that they believed that we were closer to animals than we were human. The second reason was that they believed that we were dying out, which is clearly not true because I'm here today. <laughs> the thing that surprised me most is that I had grown up knowing about this animal. And if you hadn't realised by now, that animal is the Yamatu. The story that my nana told my mother, my mother told me and my sister, who told my niece, is the same story, the same animal that they were looking for in this rock up. And this is a picture that my niece drew of the Yamati. <laughs> the thing is, all of our stories actually talk about megafauna. I don't think there's too many stories out there that talk about a small animal. All of them, or at least most of them, are big. Such as the story of the large snake. This snake ate too much sap from an acacia tree and it vomited all across the land. The places where this snake vomited are known to you as uranium. And so, uranium to us is poison. And most of these places right now are used as uranium mines. At the time, Agumatna people disagreed with mining. However, the Australian law never let us say no. Rather, we had the right to negotiate what we received. And what we received was payment. A payment that I can tell you is less than about enough for a week's worth of food for a family. So, you've probably heard about these stories as myths or as legends in books, in your classrooms, but can you really say that these stories are as simple as myths? 50,000 years worth of occupation tends to get thrown around a lot, like it's nothing. But here are 50 squares, each square representing 1,000 years. Then, if you look at the square on the right-hand side, that is the time that Europeans have been on this continent. And I'm not even talking about James Cook. I'm talking about the first European boat that sailed past and said, I see land. So if we've been here for that long, why aren't we considered experts about the land? How is it that 239 years worth of knowledge is equivalent 
to 50,000 years worth of knowledge. The stories I've told you today come from my elders, elders of the people in our community who have the knowledge that is equivalent in white Australian society of a PhD degree, which is why they are central to my research. Whatever they say I can and can't do, I listen to. You've probably met an elder at a welcome to country. But how many of you can say that you've talked to an elder outside of a welcome to country? If the only time we talk to elders is when we're asking them for a welcome to country, then we are not seeing them as the people that they are. We're not seeing them as teachers, as guides, as instructors. It's time to move on from only seeing elders as people who provide welcomes. It's time to see them in positions where they can make decisions and see them for what they truly are as the leaders of this nation. Thank you. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23-29 Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie Fair Go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions, and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition, free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. Santa Concha, what the hell is a completo anyway? It's a Chilean hot dog, mate. What happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser, Saturday 8th of June at Moreland City Bandroom, 16 Cross Street, East Brunswick, at 6pm. Come and check your culo with DJ Twin and DJ Otorongo and live music by Abe Danovitz, Little Chili and their mates. Limpiese la boquita que le quedó paltita. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. 
In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662-3744. That's 9662-3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're coming up to 8am this morning, and so that means it's time for another interview. Uh, so, see, if, you, if you're if you following the news, you may have heard that the Budgebim fish traps down in Gunditjmara country near Portland um, ha- are being considered, in the final stages of being considered for World Heritage um, status by UNESCO, um, that UN department. Uh, and so to tell us a bit more about the, the process and um, what this can mean for um, the fish traps and for, for funding and things like that, we've got Dennis Rose from the Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners Corporation on the line. Uh, Dennis, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Community Radio. Um, so let's talk about the Budgebim fish traps. Uh, so, so what are they? Well, look, out, out on country, out on the Budgebim lava flow, the, the lava flow erupted, uh, or Budgebim itself erupted 30,000 years ago. Um, on the lava flow, uh, we have a, a large number of, of, of individual fish trap systems, uh, the one that, that systems that actually combine to make an aquaculture system. So when we're talking about uh, fish traps and aquaculture systems out on out on country. We uh, we are definitely talking about a, a system that farmed eels, stored them, fattened them up, grew eels, um, as opposed to some opportunistic sort of uh, trapping of, of, of the species as they as they swim by. Mm. And so this out, is... on, out on country, you'll, you'll find around Lake Condra or Tayrak, as the traditional name is, uh, we have eighty individual fish trap systems um, and then down the lava flow we have other smaller smaller scale systems but they operated on, on various levels as the water rose and fell. Mm. Now what, what I wanted to ask was um, do, do we have any idea of um, how long ago these fish traps were in use and for how long they've been there? Yeah the, look, the, uh, there's a scientifically accepted date on, on, on one of the uh, systems which we call the Muldoon's system uh, scientifically accepted date of 6,600 years. So that's when that, that particular fish trap was first constructed, uh, 6,600 years ago. There aren't many things on the planet that were built that long ago that are still in existence today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, uh, again, dates of that system uh, being um, built upon around about 800 years ago and about 300 years ago. So as water levels... Uh, rose a little bit, uh, the systems were built up, and uh, I mean, people were still using these uh, in, in the days uh, of European invasion. In fact, we have a, a, a diary and, and maps drawn by a Crown Land surveyor in around about the 1882, I think, uh, that uh, talks that he spent time with a couple of Gunditjmara um, people out around on the fish traps and uh, when they were still in operation, yeah. Mm, and that really puts a lie to the to the fiction that 
um, Aboriginal people on this on these lands were just hunter and gatherers. They actually engaged with the land and they engaged in in farming practices. So, would would that be what you say is the the significance of Budgebim fish traps? Look, it certainly is. I think that um, you know uh, there are a number of lava flows in Western Victoria and Southeast South Australia, but this is the only one that has the uh, the scale of of uh, of uh, cultural features. So we have the uh, the fish traps, and and also uh, stone house sites. We have, you know, one of our properties, we have 146 recorded stone house sites, uh, which indicate you know a, a small village. To, to um, I think Major Mitchell in his diaries talks about uh, being around the edge of some of these wetlands and, and seeing 200 small campfires in an evening. Um, so it was a place where people, because of this great water supply, um, that. That this is why the features are constructed on on Budgebim as opposed to the other ones that has a uh, a very reliable um, and, and, and good uh, supply of water year in year round. In fact, our, uh, the the creek that supplies the water is traditional name is Kalara, which means always there, and that's very appropriately named place. Mm. So uh, the the recommendation for world heritage status was first made by the International Council of Monuments and Sites in Paris. I think that was last year, um, sometime. And so this is the basis on which UNESCO is deciding whether or not to to make uh, to to sign the world heritage status. So um, so what point of that process are we at now? Uh, look, in the, the around about the sixth or. So of July, the, the World Heritage Committee uh, meets from the 1st till the 10th of July. We understand that around about the 6th of July, um, they will uh, discuss and, and, and decide upon the, uh, the recommendation. Uh, we're hopeful, uh, uh, hopefully expecting a, uh, a positive uh, decision that, that, that Budgebin will be inscribed on the World Heritage List. It'll be the nine, uh, 20th place in Australia to be inscribed. Um, and it'll be the first Australian site to be inscribed purely because of its Indigenous values. Mm, absolutely. So, its Indigenous cultural value. Yes, that's yeah. right. Okay. Um, so this this is kind of a question that um, that some of our listeners may have swimming around in their heads at the moment, that the Budgebim um, fish traps have been around, as you say, for 6,000 years, if not more, um, and the UN has been around since the end of World War Two. So it's uh, like what what is the significance of of that institution um, sort of assigning that heritage status to Budgebim that that wasn't already inherent in it if that makes any sense? Yeah, look, I think I think that um, World Heritage, uh, from my point of view, uh, World Heritage sort of has three aspects to it: a World Heritage inscription. Uh, one is recognition, so it's recognition of what is out on that country and recognition of of our ancestors, our Gundichmara ancestors' um, remarkable uh, engineering works, and that's what they were. They are an engineering uh, works um, that was about modifying water flows, diverting water, channeling water, and then using that water for uh, to to increase the food resource. So, uh, recognition of what's out there. Um, I think better protection and management will uh, will be subject to. Uh, to uh, you know, people looking a bit more closer at our management practices, which isn't a bad thing. We always strive to uh, do the best management we can on country, um, and hopefully it will provide some extra resources to uh, 
to uh, to uh, resolve some of those management issues that we face. And third, um, you know, I think there'll there'll certainly hopefully be a uh, certainly be a financial benefit for Kunichmara uh, people and and more broadly the, the the southwest region in general. That uh, with World Heritage listing will attract um, uh, more visit more visitation to uh, to a beautiful part of the country and. Uh, um, we look forward to that as well. Certainly, the Andrews government has already earmarked $5 million um, for tourism infrastructure. What, what is your hope for the future in terms of the use of this land? Oh, look, we'll, we'll, continue. we'll continue to do what we do. I think that, uh, you know, our first and, form, our, first and foremost, our, our major uh, responsibility, our cultural responsibility, is to look after the country and, and to improve the country. Uh, to stop the degradation of weeds and rabbits and other other exotic pests uh, that we have, uh, to do revegetation, to protect those important cultural uh, features that we we have out on country. So, look, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll continue to do what we do. Uh, and we'll have better, probably a better focus and some better resources to assist us to do that. Now, Dennis, um, I imagine um, hearing about this, some of our listeners and a lot of people would be interested to go down and actually have a look at the Budgebim uh, fish traps. Is that something that people are welcome to do? And if so, how yeah. should they go about it? Well, we do. We have, um, there's a couple of options. One, and the, the preferred option is that we have uh, Budgebim tours um, that uh, they, can, they can look that up in the Google machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Budgebim tours, they run, run tours. If, if tours uh, are uh, an option for people. We have uh, our Tirundara, what we call our Tirundara IPA. IPA is Indigenous Protected Area. That's a, a property that's about 25 kilometres east of Portland, um, and uh, they can they can go out there at their leisure. It it's, has uh, access uh, day in day out. Um, no no uh, tours as such, but uh, they have some, some signage there. But we always recommend that the best way to see and understand Gunditjmara country is to have a Gunditjmara tour guide. So Budgetbim Tours is uh, uh, the way to go. Wonderful. And so you're looking that up on Google. Um, Budgetbim is spelled B-U-D-J space B-I-M. Uh, yeah, well, best of luck with the the process. It sounds like it'll it'll bring some benefits to, to the community and to the management of Budgetbim. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Community Radio. My pleasure, Will. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. I've been speaking to Dennis Rose, who um, is uh, speaking to us from the Gundich Mirroring Traditional Owners Corporation. We were talking about the Budgebim fish traps and their pending UNESCO World Heritage uh, listing. Question, do we feel like a song? Yeah, I feel like a song. All right, this is a cool hit from Laura Mavula, uh, who was in Australia just last weekend doing some Gershwin. Uh, It's called Phenomenal Woman. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 
9662-3744. That's 9662-3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. The 3CR Radiothon is here. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019 June the 3rd to the 16th Power Radical Radio This is our country We've never forgotten where we've come from Or who we are We keep our culture strong Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. And you're listening to 3CR. The time is currently 8.15. We're jumping into our last interview of the day. So we've got um, Peter Rogers on the line from Macquarie University to talk about his article in The Conversation um, discussing the rise of surveillance technology in Darwin and what the implications of that is. Uh, Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. So um, kind of reading your article, it mentions uh, facial recognition, data fences. Could you kind of outline these new technologies that are being introduced into Darwin for us? Yeah, well, um, the way in which it's been kind of plugged in to the Darwin system is through their Smart Cities program, and uh, the investments that get made into the interaction between different types of technologies is at the heart of my concern in the area, because the nature of how biometric facial recognition technologies work is that when you take <coughs> the data that comes from uh, the cameras themselves and then match them to the the database, you have the opportunity to be able to track citizens' movements in real time, and that causes uh, a number of concerns over citizen tracking, civil liberties, freedom of movement, and other universal human rights. So the way in which the technologies themselves are different from the potential for how they get used is a, is a big concern. Sorry, Peter. Um, unfortunately, you're just a little bit cloudy. If you could just move yourself a bit close to the microphone, oh, yep, or if yep, anything's no getting problem. in the way. <laughs> so, what you're just suggesting is that, yeah, definitely, this the huge collection of data is um, creating these online profiles of us and really creating significant amounts of information. I suppose, with the actual technologies that Darwin's introducing, what are the implications of uh, what, what technologies are they specifically introducing? This facial recognition. One of the things that the, is the tie to the social credit system is that it's it's possible with the technology and the similar way in which it can be used Mm -hmm. to take a video camera and say somebody is in this area and then to match that to their digital profile through, for example, a passport or a driver's license. And the, the thing that gets a little bit worrying is when they talk about the erection of virtual walls Hmm. that don't actually exist in real space and time, but it's a network of 
things that are cameras or technologies that are connected around a particular area that can then notify law enforcement remotely whether or not someone is moving into or out of that area, then the, the use of that virtual wall can be connected to something, for example, like an ankle bracelet. Mm-hmm. If someone is not, has been convicted of a crime and told they're not allowed to go into a certain area, that can be connected to the uh, digital profile to say this person is in this area, you need to then go and send police officers to that area to be able to find out if it is the same person or not. And obviously that's ex- this is extraordinarily limiting, of course. Um, you mentioned the Chinese surveillance system and the fact that this is kind of almost like the, the first step or a catalyst kind of for that. Do you think what's happened in China with these things of social barriers um, and really clamped down on personal kind of freedoms in that way, do you think that could happen here? Do you think we're fostering that environment? Uh, I think the concern is that... Um Freedom is very rarely uh, is very rarely taken by force. It often slips away from us incrementally, and we don't. Um, people don't often know the implications of the laws that are being passed that can affect them, and that of course creates problems later on because there's never any intent to create a, a, a state where people are um, being authoritarian, an authoritarian state. Uh, mm. So. We want to be able to trust in government and in police control, uh, in ASIO and in the various organizations that protect us. But when there's no regulation or oversight of the way in which these technologies are being used, we have to be concerned about the, about that situation. So when pieces of law are rushed through the um, parliament without a huge amount of debate, that causes other issues for our concern about the interplay between the technology, the intent and the way that they get used in future. And we haven't seen a lot of that uh, public discussion or oversight. So there's a lot of blind faith in the way that the technologies might be used in the future. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned the article, but this has been enabled through the encryption law. Um, I like to keep up and date with my laws, but I had not heard of this one, and it's quite scary. Could you just kind of summarise it? Because I think it's gone under the radar for many people. Well, one of the reasons for that was because the uh, the law might was introduced uh, originally uh, late September last year, and it wasn't discussed in Parliament again until the 6th of December. Mm. when it was passed through Parliament State and then affirmed into law in less than one day on the wow. 6th of December on the final sitting of Parliament. Wow. So th- there was actually very, very little public discussion of the law or its content. Yeah, it got rushed through on the final day of the final sitting. And this, this law is quite significant. It gives quite a great deal of powers to our privacy, doesn't it? It does give uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, power to, uh, particularly, I mean, it's intended for ASIO, but it's also available to federal and state police to be able to use some of this technology. And there's a lot of concern um, from a, a range of um, lawyer-oriented or, uh, organizations and from professional lawyers that this law was potentially unconstitutional, but also significantly problematic, not just because of the way in which it was introduced, but because of some of the powers that it um, enable and the, the sort of sneak and peek laws that it seems to start to begin to enable. Absolutely, and I mean, you mentioned that um, we never intend to, go, you know, create a 1984 Orwellian state, but we kind of make little tiny baby steps towards it. And obviously, this has been made in the idea of, you know, preemptive. How can we make this world safer? You know, kind of thing. Or at least I imagine it is. Um, this whole uh, assumption of Basically, yeah, preemptive strategies. Uh, you've, you're, not, you're not guilty you have, if you have nothing to hide kind of thing. What sort of social effect does this create? Does it lower well, crime thresholds? Well, we do. Um, we are living in a kind of heightened state of fear most mm. of the time anyway. I mean, terrorism is uh, kind of almost like a, a perpetual and existential threat, even though Australia 
um, has had a number of uh, quite high-profile successes through their anti-terrorism legislation and, and police actions. But how significant is that threat to Australians versus the reality of our everyday lives? Mm. Um, there's always an exchange being made between uh, how much freedom you are prepared to exchange for what kind of protection Absolutely. and whether or not that balance matches our cultural values. Are we actually in as much danger? Do we need to surrender these freedoms? What are the implications of that over a longer term? And the idea is that we're meant to be building a culture, a multicultural society that's based on collaboration, trust, empathy and communication. But when we use these kind of technologies, we start to become more and more suspicious. And that's not usually good for the soul of the civilization. We weren't thinking about who we want to be and what kind of government we want to have, what kind of democracy we want to have. There are wider implications for our values moving forward if we want to build a society based on trust or a society based on fear. Absolutely. And you mentioned the fact, um, obviously, this is getting a lot more data and a lot more personal information. Uh, as citizens of Australia and, you know, with the Internet, we give up our data every day. I mean, thumb passwords, social media accounts. We're, we're complicit in a lot of this private privacy invasion. Um, I suppose, where do we draw the line between what we're prepared to give up and what we're, we really ought not to? Well, and this is where the intersection between um, sort of our everyday acceptance of this. A number of people mm. in the, uh, the article that comments on it suggested that younger generations are actually quite happy to be watched all of the time. They spend so much time interacting with social media visually uh, through Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. We have become very, very uh, complacent yeah. about what the, the terms and conditions actually are. Mm. How many times do we actually read the terms and conditions and <laughs> yeah. take that little box and opening an account for something? Mm. It's very, very rare that we actually look at them and think about what the implications of those are. But when we tick that box, we allow, for example, Google to track our purchases through, through the Google Chrome, and they have a record in Google of every purchase that's been made using that server. It's buried deep within the settings, but that technology, that information is being freely given away. When we join a local Wi-Fi network in a shopping center, mm. are we actually tacitly giving permission to access all of the text messages on our phones? We don't know. And the fact that we don't know and that level of awareness in the public is too low considering what they're giving away, mm. particularly if this is a market society and our data has market value. Who should be gaining any kind of benefit out of that? It really should be the citizen and the fact that they're giving this information away and then don't understand what's being done with it once it's given away um, raises public awareness issues. And that, again, is a, is a little worrying when you look at how the different technologies overlap and begin to interplay. A lot of this is potential. We have to remember mm. that smart city technologies are actually really good for a lot of things. Um, for example, if we want people walking down the street at night, we want to save power. If there's no one on the street, the street lights can turn down because they will recognize through motion sensors that there's nobody there. I've seen that technology being used in Tokyo, and it has significant impacts on things like reducing energy and therefore helping with climate because mm. of the lowest carbon emissions. These things are all connected. But when the tracking of those people is being used for a law enforcement purpose rather than for um, an ecological or an economic purpose, we start getting into those grayer areas of social control and civil liberty. And those can, uh, I don't think get talked about enough and are often dismissed as mm. being crank or paranoid. Um, but the, they are real concerns, as we've seen with the use of the social credit system in China. 
Over 7 million people have been denied access to buying train tickets and plane tickets in China because of uh, low social profile, low performance on their social credit profiles. And uh, if we start seeing a state-sponsored version of social media, who knows what direction it goes in? We really don't know. And, and I don't want to say that we're all committed to a black mirror dark future, mm. but the, the foundations for that possibility now exist in law. And that puts uh, the citizen in a very weakened position in their relationship with the state. Absolutely, and it puts them in a position where they need to somewhat push against us, I suppose, because as you said, it's very incremental and it's very insidious. Um, yeah, so and counter-surveillance is actually always a very real possibility. Just a few weeks ago, the city of San Francisco outlawed the use of biometric facial recognition technologies by state government agencies within mm. the city limits. People are talking about uh, people use face masks. Um, a lot of people wear breathing masks, and part of that mm. is actually an almost a counter-surveillance trend to obscure their faces. I've seen reflective face, paint, face paints and reflective clothing being worn by people uh, because they scatter the signal from those okay. uh, from those cameras. There are ways of making mundane and everyday life aspects of, to, to be able to resist these kind of technologies, but mm. we are a group of individuals, and uh, as individuals we have a lot less power to be able to negotiate. And when we're a collective, we tend to be able to have a little bit more strength to argue back about what happens with our data. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for bringing this uh, topic onto our radar. I really do appreciate it, um, giving it a bit of noise. Um, we'll hopefully get back in contact with you some other time. I would love that. I love that. And really, this is a, we, we hope to raise awareness um, without creating fear. That's, a, that's definitely one of our goals. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR. We're just about to wrap up the show. Um, it's 8.26. Who did we start off the show with, uh, Will? Oh, we started speaking to Violet from Extinction Rebellion um, about uh, Extinction Rebellion's mission um, and their hopes for the future. They've got an event coming up this weekend. We'll put info in our show notes at 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday hyphen breakfast. Absolutely. We also talked to Desiree from um, the National Union of Students uh, about kind of what they're hoping to get up to. Uh, again, Links will be provided. Uh, we then had a kind of um, Dennis Rose as well, 8 o'clock. Oh, well, uh, before that, we heard from uh, Jacinta Kulmatri, um, who mm. spoke on um, Indigenous right, Knowledge Systems. That. No, that's right. <laughs> um, Indigenous Knowledge Systems. This was uh, a spe speech given ages ago as part of a TEDx conference, um, but really great um, listening. If you want to look up Jacinta on um, on Twitter or YouTube, that would be a good thing to do. Jacinta <laughs> Kulmatri, K-O-O-L-M-A-T-R-I-E. Absolutely. And we were just speaking to... Um, oh, and then, sorry, at, at 8 o'clock, <laughs> we spoke to Dennis Rose from um, okay. Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners Corporation about budge bim fish traps and the World Heritage Protection, uh, World Heritage... Uh, UNESCO. UNESCO status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, we were just talking to Peter Rogers from Macquarie University uh, about his kind of fears. You can check out his article at The Conversation. It's called, Is China's Social Credit System Coming to Australia? It's worth a read just to kind of look at, yeah, these, these scary mm -hmm. new devices. Mm -hmm. um, quick shout out to Extinction Rebellion. Uh, Leland Chin's Facebook page, mm -hmm. uh, Pride China stuff for Wentworth, Prime Minister for Wentworth, mm -hmm. uh, has reported that activist group Extinction Rebellion has refused its Designs of the Year shortlist place, turning down the nomination because of the Designs Museum's award sponsor, insurance company Beasley. XR, which campaigns around climate change, is calling the insurance industry to tell the truth to the British public, urging transparency. So, you know, Extinction Rebellion just raging against corporatism mm. <laughs> in um, every capacity. I am grateful for today's weather, which is going to be mild, maybe hitting a top of 
12 or something like that, but not expected to rain until the afternoon unless you're in the southeast. I am. I'm grateful for my sister who knitted me a blanket. Aww. And, like, now she's, like, also started to repair it as well over time. That's so sister. it's, like, lifelong yeah. lifelong knitting surface. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, lifelong beanie. Beanie that grows with yeah. <laughs> I am grateful that today... For the first Wednesday of the year, I get to go home and have a nap after this uh, and get down to some studying. I am in my final week of uni, uh, so I'm going to have a nice holiday for a bit. <laughs> yes. um, it'd be surprising how much going from a gap year to uni is. It's an adjustment phase. Uh, anyway, <laughs> hope you have a wonderful Wednesday. We'll kickstart you with um, Stick Together. Bye. Bye. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.